This is the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source of news and expert opinions on autism research. I'm Cynthia Graber. In this episode, we're focusing on the way scientific research and the rest of a scientist's life interact, sometimes in ways that advance science and sometimes not. This podcast is part of a series of articles on the theme of work and life. When two academics meet and fall in love, that can lead to some challenges. Jonathan Sabat says he knew it would be a problem. Probably when I first laid eyes on her. (laughs) Jonathan is now director of the Beister Center for the Genomics of Psychiatric Disease at the University of California, San Diego. His wife, Lilia Yakocheva, is an associate professor also at UCSD, also in the Department of Psychiatry, studying the molecular basis of psychiatric diseases. They're both autism researchers. At the time they met, she already had her PhD, and he didn't. We were both working 12-hour days in the lab, probably the only people in the building who were there after 6 or 7 o'clock. And, uh, and so, like, literally from the very beginning... Our bond was over workaholism. (laughs) So when we started dating, I kind of knew that this was not going to be your usual relationship. No, I think Jonathan just liked me because I already had a PhD and he didn't yet. After they married, they were working scientists in New York, they started a family, and Jonathan was publishing papers on genetics that were getting a lot of attention. His career started to take off. As he was being recruited for research positions, Lilia was inspired to pursue a new scientific project, in large part because of the research her husband was involved in and discussed with her at home. So I was always curious um, what the protein does. And then after he shared kind of genetic you know, findings with me, I always like went and looked at the functions of proteins and this and that. And then I just decided at some point um, to write a proposal to study protein functions or proteins from the genetic studies. And, and my proposal actually got funded by NIH. But then they faced what all dual academic couples face, the academic job search. You know, you walk into the department chair's office and they ask you the question, are you married? And your, your immediate answer is, well, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, my wife is a research assistant professor at Rockefeller, and you immediately have that conversation with the department chair. And they know very well that that is probably one of the most number one highest priority issues with any recruitment is this woman or this man is not alone. They have to bring an entire family with them. Jonathan says that in this case, it helped that their research was in the same field. Obviously, when your research interests are close together, the chances that both of your research programs will fit the, the sort of the recruitment priorities of a particular place gets better. If you're doing things in related areas, then the chances that you're both going to fit somewhere is much better than if one of you is an astrophysicist and the other person is an anthropologist. I didn't really mind, um, you know, following him in terms of, like, location as long as I receive, you know, a position, a challenging position for me, a tenure-track position that I wanted, and that, you know, I can accomplish myself as a scientist. For other couples, it doesn't always work out quite so well, but Lilia doesn't see any easy solution. You can't implement a policy for the universities that 
they have to hire a spouse, obviously, right? It, I don't think it, it can be written in a law that if you're hiring, you know, one person and the other person is a scientist, you have to hire them. It would be hard to implement. Sometimes, a life situation such as a move leads to taking a break from working as a scientist. That was the situation for Caroline Taylor. She'd received her PhD and did a couple of postdocs on nutrition and diseases. She and her husband had a child, and then he got a job in the U.S. Caroline decided not to work overseas. While they were there, they had another two children. When they moved back to the U.K., she wanted to get back into science, but she couldn't. I did feel that my skills were a bit out of date and... That especially if I was going to move into a new area, which was likely or slightly new area, I was going to need to to get some new skills and get updated. Yeah, and and all my networks had gone as well. A lot of the people that I knew had moved on or retired, so you know I didn't have that many contacts either, which didn't help. I did get the occasional interview, but the message I was getting was that you haven't got enough recent relevant experience and it was this it was the sort of catch-22 you know you haven't got the experience but you've got to get the job to get the experience um so I was I was a bit stuck really instead Caroline created another career freelancing as a copy editor for scientific journals while that took advantage of certain skills it didn't fulfill her scientifically but after years out of the lab Caroline felt like she'd never be able to get back in Then she saw an ad for the Daphne Jackson Trust, a program that retrains its grantees in science and helps restart their careers. It also matches them up with universities. Caroline applied, and she received the fellowship. I was learning statistical techniques practically from nothing, Um, learning all about epidemiology and how to handle big databases, and just generally kind of getting back into science and into the way of thinking and building up my confidence again, building up my networks, all those sort of things. Um, So it was just really fantastic introduction um, back into science. And that then made me employable in science, which I hadn't really been before and gave me the confidence to to be able to go for new jobs. And um, I'd say I, I worked on some other projects for a year, and then I got another fellowship for Returners to Science, which was through the, the Wellcome Trust. Caroline thanks both fellowships, the two-year Daphne Jackson Trust and the four-year Wellcome Trust Reentry Fellowship, for helping her get back into science. Today, she's an environmental epidemiologist at the University of Bristol. It's possible I would still be working in the job I had before running my business, and I would have been quite bored and frustrated I think I might have might have found something else but I don't think it would have been as satisfying as what I'm doing now and it wouldn't have wouldn't have made use of all the skills and knowledge and expertise that I'd built up as a scientist and Caroline says that losing talented scientists because they've taken a break and can't find a way back into the lab that's a loss for all of science you know for people who've had a degree and a PhD and some experience, you know, they've had a lot of money invested in them. And it's just a terrible, terrible waste if those people are are lost to science. That's just a waste of money and a waste of people's talents. All working scientists, in fact, all working adults, have to contend with the constant challenge of how to balance their work with their non-work life. Helen Tigger-Flussberg, professor of psychological and brain science at Boston University, has been walking that tightrope throughout her 40-plus year career. Well, I handled it quite poorly the first few years in that um, I had no mentors. I didn't realize, or I probably wasn't even able at that stage, to ask for a maternity leave. So even just juggling getting back to work with a 
uh, six-week-old infant was challenging enough. I really rested right at the beginning on getting out the work that I had done as a, a doctoral student, my doctoral dissertation, getting that published. That really was all I could do at the beginning. And then by the time my daughter was a little bit older, um, I began thinking of the next stages of my research and uh, launched in with applying for an R01, probably two years into my uh, position. Honestly, I feel like I have complete amnesia in that I have no idea how I managed it. Helen says that by the time her kids were in high school, she was in the perfect position for her career to really take off. And at that point, fortuitously, that was the point in time, the inflection point, when all of a sudden autism research became a very um, hot area. There was an infusion of funding from the National Institutes of Health and the uh, private foundations, the family foundations, were beginning to get started. And so all of a sudden there were now these exciting opportunities. And so until then I had, you know, been able to be successful, maintain my R01 grant, or different ones during that period. But at this point I was able to take advantage of these new opportunities because the family needs had gone way down. Of course, balancing work and life is an issue for both women and men. Helen says it's impossible to feel like you've given both your absolute best. I think the hardest for me is what everybody finds the hardest, uh, feeling that you're never giving enough to uh, work and you're never giving enough to the rest of your life. And uh, for me, you know, that was work and family and that there was very little me time. Uh, I didn't really factor into that equation at all. But I think we all feel that way. Perhaps in retrospect, though, I managed to keep myself uh, going way better than I was thinking at the time. You know, because there's, you could always be doing more work. You could always be writing another paper. You could always uh, be thinking about uh, your next grant or further analyses on the data that you've already been collecting. And so there's a lot of unfinished work in my past because I didn't have the time for that. Um, and there are also many, many regrets that we all have that we don't give enough time to uh, family and to friends and to community. So those are the things that are the hardest. Um, and maybe the hardest thing is to forgive oneself. But at the same time, I enjoyed every part of my life so much. I loved my work. I love my uh, personal life and my family and so forth, that I actually feel quite satisfied with the life that I managed to pull together, but it was never planned. Um, I was never very thoughtful about it. I always reacted to what the external demands were. Helen says that institutional and policy-based changes could help women and men achieve more of a work-life balance. We here in the United States need to <laughs> move towards having something like mandatory vacation that really means vacation, that um, there's flexibility for days off that are needed for child care or elder care. Uh, more and more uh, people reach their mid-career and they're dealing with elder care issues that are just as challenging. I mean, I was fortunate and I 
didn't really um, experience that to a significant uh, degree, but other people do. And building in that flexibility is, I think, critical if we're going to move forward and not have such significant burnout. This was the podcast for Spectrum, the leading source of news and expert opinions on autism research. To read the articles discussed in the podcast, among others, visit spectrumnews.org. I'm Cynthia Graber.